Well, as we were talking about earlier, whenever I was giving the announcements, we are this morning going to be starting a series that will, Lord willing, last four weeks. And what we're going to be looking at and considering in this series is the church. The church. Us. Gathered together this morning. We are the church. And we're going to be looking at the church as a whole, which includes every Christian from all over the world, which is also known as the universal church. And we are also going to be considering the local church, which is an individual gathering of believers, which is what we are. We are a local individual body of believers. We are the local church. So we're going to be considering and looking at both over the course of this series. And my goal and my prayer in doing this series is that we would be reminded and be better grounded in our understanding and what it means to represent the Lord Jesus Christ as His church which is what we are. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what our local church name may be, we are Alt Chapel Bible Church, but we are ultimately the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We exist to represent Him and for His glory. Now, The plan that I have laid out for this series is that today, in this sermon, we will be looking at a biblical overview of what a church is and why it exists. So we're going to be today doing a, I guess, a big picture look, you could say. That's what I mean by overview. We're going to be doing a big picture look in the Bible of what a church is and what it means to be a church. And then next week, we'll look at what it means for an individual church body to be committed to one another as a whole. And in the third part of the series, we'll be focusing on what it looks like for the church to be committed to one another as individuals. So we have, so far, the overview that we're doing today. Then we're going to be looking at what it means to be committed to one another as a whole, meaning the body. And then we're going to be looking at what it means to be committed to one another as individuals. And then our final message in the final part of the series is going to be focused on what it looks like to be committed to raising up godly homes and seeking the salvation of the community that we are planted in. So that is where we are going over the next few weeks together. And may it be so that the end result is that we are a people who are reminded and better grounded in what it means to represent Jesus our Lord. Now before we go any further, let us bow in prayer and ask the Lord for His help. Father, we again come before You as we are prepared to open Your Word before us. Father, we are here seeking Your face. And I thank You for the privilege 
that it is to be able to stand before this local body of believers in your Son. Your people who are called your church. Father, I thank You that You have brought us together and that we exist for Your glory and for enjoying You. And I ask now that You would again quiet our minds and You would quiet our hearts as we seek to learn from Your Word and not only with our minds, but we seek to have our hearts open before You. And may it be put down deep within our hearts. May we know it and may we love it. And it's all of these things that we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, what is a church? What is a church? Now, we mentioned earlier that it is a gathering of every Christian from all over the world, and it is also a local body. But something that often comes into our mind whenever we think of the word church is the building that we are sitting in now. Often whenever we hear the word church, we think of the building that we gather in every week, every Sunday morning. And it's not wrong to think that. It's not wrong to call the building in which we are gathered the church as long as that's not the only thing that comes to your mind when you think of the church. Because the word church doesn't literally mean a building. It doesn't mean a building. In the New Testament, the Greek word that is translated as church in our English language is ecclesia. That's the Greek word, which means assembly. That's what the word means. So the church is an assembly. Well, what is, is, what is it an assembly of exactly? Now, this, what I'm about to say next, you need to pay careful attention to because what I'm about to say next is what we are going to spend the rest of our time together unpacking. So this is what we are going to be spending our time together unpacking for the rest of our time. So what is, what is it an assembly of? The church is an assembly of people who have been brought together by God Himself into a covenant relationship with Himself through the cross of Jesus for the purpose of reflecting Him to the world and enjoying Him Forever. Now I know that's a long sentence. So I'm going to read it to you again. The church is an assembly of people who have been brought together by God Himself into a covenant relationship with Himself through the cross of Jesus for the purpose of reflecting Him to the world, and enjoying Him forever. That is what the church is. And that is why it exists. That is why our local church exists. And also, that is why you as an individual exist. 
Now I want to pause here for a moment because this is critical. Because you and I can spend most of our lives pondering and wondering and even sometimes stressing about you know, what it is we're supposed to be doing with our lives. You know, God, what is my purpose here on this earth? What is my meaning for being alive? Well, I'm claiming to you this morning that what I just told you is the answer to that question. You exist for the purpose of imaging and reflecting God and enjoying Him forever. That is your sole purpose. And so, I was thinking about whenever I was going to say that, who I was going to be looking at. And I, I look at people and I look at you and I see people who are plumbers. I think of my brother Jacob. He's a plumber. I, I see people who are retired folk. I see people who drive trucks for a living. I see people who are school teachers, who are mail carriers, who are speech therapists, speaking of my wife. Now, I say all of that to mean that it doesn't matter exactly what it is your hands find to do. As long as that whatever it is they find to do, you do it with all your might and you do it to the glory of God. That is the main concern that God has for what you do with your life. It does not matter what occupation you have or what you spend your life doing so long as you do it for the glory of God, you reflect Him in it, and you enjoy Him while you do it. That is your sole purpose, Christian. And so find rest in that. Now I know it's important that you know, should I go to school or should I not go to school? Those are important, important questions. But just know that as long as if you are glorifying God and enjoying Him, you are within the will of God and you are making much of Him and it is pleasing in His sight. Now, back to what I was talking about a moment ago as far as the church. Because we are not created to do this just as individuals. This is not just an individual thing. We were made by God to do this as individuals, but within a community. And that is what God's plan was from the very beginning of creation. From the very beginning, God intended to create a people who would reflect Him, who would image Him, and enjoy Him Forever. So now let's begin our journey of a biblical overview of what it means to be a church. And what we're going to specifically be looking at is this desire that God has to be imaged and be reflected in a people, not just an individual, a people. So that's what I want you to be looking for as we go through the Bible, a people, an assembly. So in the beginning... When God created Adam, you remember, He saw that it was not good for the man to be alone. So He then created the woman, Eve, and God gave them the command to be fruitful and multiply so that they would fill all of the earth. God's intention from the very beginning 
was to be imaged or reflected not by a single man, but by a vast multitude of men and women who would fill all of the earth. And not only was it His intention for them to fill the earth, but it was His intention for them to be stewards of the earth, to reflect His glory and His character throughout all of the earth. And they were to enjoy God in the midst of it all. Now, we know that Adam and Eve didn't make it very far in this command. They actually failed very quickly. So Adam and Eve fell into sin, and God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. He punished them as a consequence of their sin. But God's plan, however, had not failed. It was, in fact, right on track. This was not a a plan B that God was about to come about with. His plan was right on track. He knew that Adam and Eve would fail. He knew that they would succumb to sin. So after their failure in the Garden of Eden, God made a promise to Adam and Eve and said that one day a Savior was going to come and return all things to how they were supposed to be. Now all of that happened within the first few chapters of Genesis. Now a little further in the book and a good many years later, we are introduced to a man named Abraham. And we see God make a covenant with this man, Abraham. And covenant just means a a binding agreement. So God makes a binding agreement with Abraham. And what this covenant consisted of, and I hope these few words sound familiar to you, especially for those of you who are members of All's Chapel Bible Church. This covenant consisted of land, seed, and blessing. God promised Abraham that one day a great nation was going to come from him. That was the seed. And this great nation, God was going to give a land. That was the promise of land. And that through these people, all of the nations throughout the earth would be blessed. That was the promise of blessing. Now, This covenant that God makes with Abraham is huge because it brings to mind what God's purpose was in the beginning. So it points us back and it points us forward. It points us back because what was Adam and Eve enjoying when they were in the Garden of Eden? They were God's people living in God's place, enjoying God's blessing. And so we see here now with God making this covenant to Abraham, He's showing, yes, they failed. Adam and Eve failed, but I have not failed. And my promises will continue to go forth. And that is what I'm doing now as I make these promises to Abraham. I am showing you that the plan of redemption is still going forth. And what we're going to see in a moment is that it goes forth in the steadfast love and the power of God Himself, not by the works of man. And so also, I said that it points us forward. So this covenant language, this covenant talk of land, seed, and blessing, you could say is really the the skeleton that forms the Bible. Everything else that we see in the Bible attaches to this covenant language that God makes to Abraham, and we're going to see that 
in our overview. But now I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. I want you to take a look with me at this covenant that God is about to make with Abraham. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham has prepared himself to make, to hear this covenant with God. And so, in their day, in this time period, it was normal that when two people made a covenant together, they would take animals and they would slaughter them. They would literally cut them in half and they would make a path. Besides the birds, they wouldn't cut the birds in half. But he would lay them in a row. And the two people who were making the covenant would walk through the covenant and they would be reciting the covenant as they walked through. And the symbolism was is that if one of them was to break the covenant, they were saying, let it be done, let it be done to me as it has been done to these animals that are slaughtered before us. So that is the weight of the symbolism that we are going to see here. But what is so awesome about how God makes this covenant is that He walks through by Himself. Abraham doesn't walk through with God. So let, let's take a look at this. In verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, which was what his name was before God named him Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces on the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land. And I'll stop there. So why did God, in the form of this flaming torch and this smoking fire pot, pass through the pieces by Himself? Why didn't Abraham walk through with Him? He was showing... God was showing that all of the responsibility, the responsibility to fulfill the covenant was on Him. Not by the works of man, but by the works of God Himself. He was showing, I am making this covenant promise to you, Abraham, and I am going to bring it about, not by anything that you can do, but because of who I am, because of my own power and for my own namesake. That is what God was saying when He passed through alone. Not by the works of man, but by the works of God Himself. Now let's fast forward the story a little further. We're in the book of Exodus now. In the book of Exodus, we see that God has in fact created the nation of people that He promised would come from Abraham. 
He then rescues this nation of Hebrews, which is called the nation of Israel, from the slavery that they had been experiencing in the nation of Egypt for 400 years. God also promised and foretold that in His covenant to Abraham. So He rescues them. He gives them His law. He gives them a land. And He makes a covenant with them. A covenant that once again reaches back to what we saw with Adam and Eve and also with Abraham. God tells the nation of Israel that He is their God and that they are His people or His assembly. They are His assembly. Now I want you to remember that word assembly because it's going to be coming about in the New Testament whenever we get there and see how all, all of this ties together. So He tells His people that He is their God and that they are His people or His assembly and that they are to obey Him and reflect Him to the world so that the world can see who the true and living God is and what it looks like to live under His reign and His authority. This was the privilege that was given to the people of Israel. They were called by God to be holy as He is holy. They were called to be in the world, but not of the world, in order to reflect God and His character to the world. So, what is this reminding you of? Again, we have God's people living in God's place, experiencing God's blessing. Because God would later on, after giving him, giving them His law, He would give them the land of Canaan. They would dwell there. And He would bless the nation of Israel. Because for a while they did obey. So that again reaches back to this covenant language that we see with Adam and Eve and with Abraham. God's people being in God's place, experiencing God's blessing. Now again, we know that the people of Israel failed in their command to be holy as the Lord is holy and to reflect Him to the world. Overall, they could not live up to their end of the covenant. So God punished them as He promised that He would when He made the covenant with them. He said, if you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. And eventually, I will take you out of this land and I will give you into the hands of your enemies, which is what He did. God gave the people of Israel into the hands of their enemies. Now, in the midst of all of this, God gives a promise to His people. Now turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. Now in Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet Jeremiah is prophesying to the people of Judah, which was in the south. So in all of this disobedience and punishment by God, the nation that was once one nation became split. And Israel resided in the north, 
and Judah was in the south. And at this point, Israel has already fallen. They were overtaken by the Assyrians and they were led into exile. Judah, on the other hand, has not yet gone into exile, but they're about to because they continue to disobey. And so God speaks to them through the prophet, through the prophet Jeremiah and He says this in verse 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each other his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So here, God promises to write His law on their hearts, enabling them to obey and to enjoy God from their hearts, which is what they could not do before, which is why they were punished by God. The people of Israel did obey, but it wasn't an a heartfelt obedience. And it wasn't a heartfelt joy. Over and over again, you see the prophets proclaiming to the people of Israel, you draw near to me with your lips, but with your hearts you are far from me. They were constantly told that in their disobedience. And so now Jeremiah comes to them and he says, one day the Lord is going to make a new covenant. And He is going to write His law on your hearts. And He is going to enable you to obey with your heart, from the heart. Now I also want you to notice in this passage this husband language that God uses through the prophet Jeremiah. He says that they have forsaken Him as their husband. Now what does that mean? Why does God say that people of Israel are His... They are his they are his, his bride and that he is their husband. Well, Israel was often referred as a bride and God being their husband. And this is going to be huge because in the New Testament, when we come to Christ and His church, the church is called what? They are called the bride of Christ. And so this is where this language comes from first used in the Old Testament, and then Jesus takes it in the New Testament, and He shows that He is the true husband, and the church is the bride. Now I want you to come with me to Ezekiel chapter 36, because in Ezekiel, we see something there that we don't see in Jeremiah. Ezekiel chapter 36. Now in Ezekiel chapter 36, the people of Israel have gone into exile. They've been punished. They're now in exile. And so the prophet Ezekiel speaks to them in this setting. And I'm going to be starting in verse 22. 
So the prophet Ezekiel speaks to the people of Israel and he says this, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. That's the language that you hear in the prophet Jeremiah. Giving a new heart. Writing it, writing his law on their hearts. So I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So again, here in Ezekiel, we have the promise that Jeremiah gave echoed. But what we see here specifically that we don't see in Jeremiah is this idea that, or this promise rather, that God is not only going to write His law on their hearts, but He's going to put His very own Spirit within them. So God is promising that one day He is going to make a new covenant with His people that enable them to obey with their hearts and it is going to involve being filled with His Spirit. Now, the prophets didn't really know how all of that was going to come about. But we, on the New Testament side of things, do. And so now, turn with me to the New Testament. And you can be turning to the first passage we're going to look at in the New Testament here in a moment is Matthew. So you can be turning to Matthew chapter 16. So when we come to the New Testament, we're introduced to a man named Jesus. Now this man, Jesus, is the promised one. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He is the one who fulfills all the promises of God, including the promises of land, seed, and blessing. Because Jesus is the true and obedient Son of God. He is the true and obedient Son of Israel. Because often Israel was referred to as God's Son. Well, Jesus fulfills that. So therefore you have the promise of seed fulfilled. Jesus Christ is also the place where you find your ultimate and final rest. And so therefore the promise of land is fulfilled because you go to Christ to find your rest. And also in Christ, in Him, all of the nations are blessed. True blessing comes from Jesus Christ 
and from Him alone. And so therefore you have the promise of blessing fulfilled. Now we ask the question, what about the people? You know, what about this assembly that we've been talking about? So Jesus fulfills all of these promises, but what about the people that we've been looking at, that God is um, desiring to be reflected in? Well, yes, Christ fulfills all of those things. But at the same time, there's a part of these promises that are being worked out and are still being fulfilled in His people that Jesus gathers to Himself which is what I want us to look at now, the people that Jesus Himself gathered together in His life and in His ministry. So throughout the Gospels, Jesus did wondrous miracles and He taught the Word of God. You know, that is very clearly seen. But what I often think we miss is that in the midst of all of this, He was gathering together that people. He was gathering to Himself His assembly. He was gathering to Himself God's chosen people. He just wasn't gathering them in a way that we would have expected Him to gather them. And also the people of Israel, because they constantly, even His disciples, which we're about to look at, were were asking Him, when are you going to bring the kingdom about? When are you going to set your throne up? And when are you going to restore Israel to the place that it deserves. That's the language that they would use. But Jesus has a a different plan. He had a different plan in mind. And so if if you remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, He called to Himself 12 disciples. 12 disciples who would later be known as the 12 apostles, besides Judas, of course. He would later betray Jesus and would be replaced in the book of Acts. But these men were the twelve apostles. And there are also others as well. There were other people, and I think of the women who were called Jesus' disciples, who constantly followed Jesus faithfully and served Him faithfully. But within the gospel narratives, the focus is constantly on the twelve disciples and what Jesus is doing with them, because He's constantly taking them to the side and teaching them and showing Him His ways. He is showing them how it is that they are to preach the gospel and reflect God to the people. Now, turn with me to Matthew 16, which is the passage that I told you about earlier. Matthew 16. And so on one occasion... We see Jesus, like He normally does, taking the disciples, the twelve apostles, aside, and He teaches them. Well, on this occasion, He asks them a question. He says in verse 13, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And He's asking this question to the twelve. Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here we see Jesus clearly saying that He is going to build His church or His assembly. And what He is going to build it upon is the authority of the twelve apostles that Jesus has given to them and the confession that they have and made that Peter vocalized. He asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter said, You are the Christ, speaking on behalf of the twelve, like Peter often does. So it is on that authority and on that foundation that Jesus is saying, I am going to build my assembly. And so again, this language should be bringing to mind God's desire to be reflected and enjoyed by a people and not just individuals. Now the question is, how are these people going to be different? So Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm gathering my people, God's chosen people, but what's going to be different? You know, how are they going to be different from the people that we see in the Old Testament who constantly failed? How will they differ from the assembly that God had gathered together in the Old Testament? Well, all the while, while Jesus has been gathering this people, He has, in fact, been living for them. He has been living the perfect life that they could not live. He had perfect obedience, the obedience that is required of us. So Jesus has been doing that for them. In His death, He's going to die for them. He's going to take their sin, which He's going to take their sin, and He's going to face God's wrath, which they deserve, which they have earned because of their sin. So He's going to pay for that. He's going to take their sin upon Himself and He's going to pay off, you could say. He's going to ransom the people of God by taking fully upon Himself the wrath of God. And in His resurrection, He is going to raise to new life these people. In Jesus' resurrection, we have resurrection to new life in Himself. Now before He's going to do these things, before He dies for them and before He's raised from the grave, He's going to establish something. And now I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Now in Luke chapter 22, Jesus has neared the end of his life, and he and his disciples are in this upper room, and they are celebrating the Passover feast. And what he's about to do here is he is about to establish the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah that we saw earlier, and we saw in Ezekiel. Look with me in verse 14. And when the hour came, 
he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. The new covenant is established in the life, in the death, and in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Now, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. So what is going to become of this new covenant people that Jesus has gathered to Himself and that He has established? What is going to happen to them? Well, after Jesus' resurrection, He again spends some time with the disciples and He promises them what Ezekiel promised in His his prophecy. He told them that a helper was going to come and that He was going to be poured out upon them. And so in Acts chapter 2, at the very beginning of the chapter, we read these words. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this people that Jesus has lived for, that He has died for, that He has rose from the grave for, have received His new covenant, they live in it, and now we see them receiving the Spirit of God Himself, which enables them to worship, to obey, and to enjoy God with their hearts, which is what the intention was from the very beginning, all the way back to Adam and Eve. We were intended to enjoy God, to reflect God with our hearts. And so Jesus comes along and He does that for us. He does that for you. If you enjoy God this morning, if you are His follower, if you obey Him with your hearts, if it brings you joy to do so, it's because He has established the new covenant. And it is because He has poured out His Holy Spirit upon you. Now, what happens again to these people? What what happens to them as time goes on? Well, let's look again in Acts chapter 2. Moving on now to... Verse 42, so after they received the Spirit of God, they began to preach the Word of God to the people surrounding 
that were in Jerusalem surrounding that area. They went out and they began to preach the Word of God to these people filled with the Spirit of God, enjoying Him and obeying Him from their hearts. Now what happens? Verse 42 says this, And they, the assembly, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the foundation which Jesus said He was building His church upon, that the gates of hell will not and cannot and will never overcome. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, one another, the body, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church became established in Jerusalem. And the Lord added to their numbers, according to His will, those who were being saved day by day. And we see this story continue throughout the book of Acts. The church grows by God's power and by His grace. Missionaries like Paul are sent out. They begin preaching to the Gentile believers, which again was the purpose from the very beginning. The people of God were meant to reflect His character to the nations. God was never meant to just belong to Israel. They were meant to reflect Him to the world, and the world would therefore see that is the true God. And that is what it looks like to have true religion. Not this false stuff that we partake in, in and of ourselves. And so the church, established by Christ, they do that. With glad hearts and being filled by the Spirit of God, they go out, they preach the Word of God, and He adds to their numbers. Until, here we are today, Alts Chapel Bible Church. A little over 2,000 years later, the church has spread all over the world. Now there are still unreached people groups out there which means we have work to do, brothers and sisters. We are to be following the example that we see here at the early church, or in the early church, rather. Enjoying God, reflecting Him, and spreading His gospel. And so as the Lord added to their numbers day by day, according to His will, so He will do so today. He will add to our numbers as a local body, and as the universal church, as He sees fit. God continues to gather His chosen people together under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the husband of the church, which is His bride, which has been 
paid for and ransomed by His life, His death, and His resurrection. And we look forward to the day when Christ comes back. Our husband comes. The groom comes. And He clothes us in the righteousness that we partake in in part now, but will in that day receive fully and enjoy for all eternity, forever. So this is who you are, people of God. This is who you are, people of Alds Chapel Bible Church. You are an assembly of people who have been brought together by God Himself into a covenant relationship with Himself through the cross of Jesus for the purpose of reflecting Him to the world and enjoying Him forever. Father, we come before You and we thank You now for Your great promises that You gather together a people by the life, death, and resurrection of Your Son. We do not deserve any of these things. We do not deserve to be called Your people. We do not deserve to enjoy Your promises. But You have, by Your grace, gathered us together and will one day come again and gather us together in Your place, experiencing Your blessing as Your people. And it is in these things that we look forward to and it is in the name of Jesus that we say, Amen.